0: Before we get into uh, Romans, uh, one thing that I did want to just mention because uh, right now we're in our um, life church quarter, where on Wednesday nights in January and February we meet here at the church at six and then also seven thirty. We're going through Proverbs right now. I've had a blast teaching through <laughs> the book of Proverbs. It's my first time actually teaching it verse by verse in its entirety. So it's a fascinating book and really fun to get into. And it 's been just a, r- a real joy, and I think a life giving for the church, so you know come on out Wednesday nights. but the thing I wanted to talk about today uh, before getting into our Bible study is I wanted to just really make sure that I mentioned our coming quarter of life groups in March, April, and May uh, in the church. And uh, John says in 1 John chapter 1 that one of the outworkings of the gospel message, the cross of Christ, one of the outworkings of it as it's declared and it's proclaimed, is that what it creates is it creates a group of people who are now a family who have a thing called fellowship. And it's the, it's a sharing of life together. And in the early church, you saw that uh, clearly displayed people came to know jesus christ as their lord and as their savior and immediately there was a sense that they were outcast from mainstream society and you know still had friends and family and coworkers and people like that in their lives but they needed believers to gather together with so it says in acts chapter 2 for instance that the early church believers gathered together steadfastly, devoted themselves steadfastly to the word of God or the apostles doctrine and then also to breaking bread and fellowship and prayer. So they were like really devoted to we're going to eat food together and we're going to Uh, hang out together and encourage and exhort one another in the things of God. We're going to, of course, just ask simple questions like, how are you doing? But we're also going to really just encourage one another, bless one another, say uh, exhortations to one another, because this life can be discouraging and we can easily drift. And we're going to pray together for each other and in our lives and our church. And we're going to cry out to God together and just kind of open our hearts up in uh, that kind of way. And for me, I have a very strong conviction about this. I believe that this is a very important part of the Christian life probably a little bit because well I know a lot of it because of just my own convictions about scripture but also a lot of it has to do with just the way that I began in my Christian walk with the Lord when I first started walking with the Lord one of the first things that happened in my life is that a small group of young guys my age we got together every single week and we talked about what was happening in our lives and we prayed for one another and it was so simple but it was so revolutionary in my life and really helpful to me to learn how to, in one way or another, both receive ministry from other people and receive from the Lord. But then also, and here was the beautiful thing for me, to learn how to begin to to begin pouring into other people's lives and to encourage other people and to refresh other people. So right now I'm getting ready for uh, softball season in our family. And uh, we've got some softball players in in our house. And so I'll be coaching a little, you know, girls softball team. And one of the things that, you know, people tell them is, keep your eye on the ball, you know, and parents from the bleachers like to yell that at their kids, keep your eye on the ball. And these little girls usually don't know what that means. So I'll say, watch the ball and don't watch anything else. You know, okay, I understand that. And I think that in the Christian life, we, a lot of times we just need that over and over again, someone else saying in our lives or someone speaking to us, keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on the ball. Keep walking with the Lord. Keep loving the Lord. And the thing that I've found is that as I just, week after week, just gather together with other believers, God just does things that seem spectacular and seem very ordinary, but God does things. And uh, I can't decide what week God will do things, but he does things. And so uh, in the weeks to come, you're going to hear about life groups and places that they're meeting in and homes they are meeting in and different leaders and hosts and opportunities and things like that but I just wanted to encourage you in a very fresh way I believe that gathering together with other believers is a massive part of the Christian life and I'd encourage you to make that a part of your life however you can and if part of that for you is getting into a group then great and I hope that there's a perfect group for you uh, to be in just remember if it is the perfect group for you to be in, don't mess it up, okay? All right, <laughs> that's just the thing. It's like there's sin. We're we're not a perfect people. We get together and we just grow together. All right, so I just wanted to mention that before getting into uh, Romans uh, chapter two uh, this morning. Uh, last week we saw Paul. And uh, he really began building uh, a very strong argument. Uh, Two weeks ago, we saw him give his mission statement or his theme statement really for the whole book of Romans. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed. Uh, It's the power of God for salvation. So there's the concept in Paul's mind that we need a thing called salvation from God. In other words, Paul, through his mind, looks upon mankind, looks upon the world and says, The need that mankind has is salvation. They must be saved by God. Now what that means, he clarifies as he goes on and says, it's for everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. So what we need in order to be saved by God is we need the righteousness of God. You see, God is righteous and holy and perfect and pure, and we are not. So we need that righteousness of God to be deposited into our uh, account. So he says, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, for as it's written, the righteous will live by their faith. So how do we access this great gospel that leads to salvation by giving us the righteousness of God while we receive it by faith? All right, so then Paul launches into His argument. And we started this last week in Romans 1 verse 18 to 32. And in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, Paul said something very important because the big question is, why do we need to be saved? Why do we need this gospel message so desperately, so badly? And he answers it basically in Romans 1 18 by saying, for the wrath of God is revealed against the all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. In other words, God has a position. A position towards the unrighteousness and ungodliness that is in the world. And the position that God has is one of wrath toward all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. And like I mentioned last week, this wrath is not the flip side of the love of God. It actually isn't that. The flip side of God's wrath would be God's indifference, his lack of care, his lack of concern. It's actually because he loves mankind that he has a position of settled anger, opposition to Sin and rebellion, because it's ungodliness and unrighteousness and sin that separates us from him. So because he loves us, he's angry at that sin that separates us from him, and he wants to do something about that sin so that we can be reunited Uh, to him. So that's really the story of the gospel. How can God reunite a ungodly, unrighteous, broken world? How can he reunite it to uh, himself? And it's interesting that it begins there with the anger, the settled wrath of God toward unrighteousness, and that causes him to say, and I'm going to do something about it. Now, last week we saw uh, Paul's perspective, and I, I hope this was very helpful for you, in understanding the the pagan world. And, and the way I described it last week is Paul was describing the need for the gospel in immoral mankind. All right, so he talked about uh, different ways that God gave them up. They suppressed the truth. They stopped worshiping God. They began worshiping idols. But then three times Paul says God gave them up. God gave them up. Number one, phase one was He gave them up to. There are there's a sexual desire in mankind in general, and God gave them up to the perversity of their desires. In other words, sexual immorality. So we would see in a culture or society that God is giving up in that way, you'd see pornography and prostitution and uh, deep lust and uh, you know, sex outside of marriage. You'd see all of that in that kind of society and culture. And then in phase two of God giving up a society and culture, Paul explained that then there wasn't just per, uh, perverse desire for natural sex but unnatural sex also became prominent in that culture and paul was watching that he was kind of describing the roman society and culture that he was living in and then the third thing that god gave them up to was a long list of different kinds of sins but at the end of it the big thing was that there's the approval of these different sins in that society and in that culture and almost the celebration of these sins so in one sense he's saying there's a moral man guilty and in need of the message of the gospel now that would lead us should lead us i think to a natural question and the question that we would ask is well what about the rest of the world Because is Paul trying to say that the only people that need the gospel are the kinds of people and the kinds of societies that you might categorize uh, there in Romans chapter 1? And by the way, I I hope that just in looking at Romans 1, especially 24 to 32, I hope that it helps you in a lot of different ways. I know it helps me. It helps me to pray that eyes would be open. It helps me to have a deeper compassion factor in my life because I look out and I realize God gave them up. There's a river, a current that is so strong that people are getting sucked into. And yes, they will individually have to answer to a living God, but the pull of society and culture is so strong upon them and it brings a compassion inside of my heart for those who have been swallowed up by it. It also helps me feel like God's in control because God's in the process. God gave them up. So I'm not losing my mind and going, how can these things be? It's like I read the Bible. Now I know how these things can be. All right. So I hope that it helps you in a lot of different ways. But the question would be, is that all Paul has to say about those who need the gospel? Because that certainly isn't the way that you would describe the whole world. Paul looked at the Roman culture that he was in and said yeah this is part of what i'm seeing but there were also people who did not believe in god who were operating by some kind of moral code people who were trying to do the right thing. And I think as you just look out at the world that we live in today, you might be able to identify nations or societies or cities or even whole continents that you would say, yeah, maybe in general, Romans 1, 24 to 32, that would be like an appropriate description in general of that part of culture and society. But then you probably could also look out at other parts of the world, parts of the world that are closed, to the gospel, parts of the world that don't have the word of God, but you wouldn't say I would describe them with Romans 1. There is a uh, kind of a morality there, a prudishness there, a kind of separation, wanting to do the right thing that's there. There are people out there that you might say they're trying to do the right thing. They want to be good people or something like that. And so we might describe that as the moral world. And what Paul is going to show us today is that the moral world needs the gospel just like the immoral world needs the gospel. So let's take a look at what Paul the Apostle uh, had uh, to write. And this is going to be very helpful because maybe even some of you last week, as I'm reading through and going through Romans chapter 1, you're like, yeah, get them, and uh, you're about to get yours today, okay? So... Equal opportunity from the Lord here for all of us. All right, so he says, verse 1, he says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, Paul here uses a device where he just begins having a conversation with the reader. In this passage, 37 times he's going to say, You. Or yourself or yours so he's engaging the reader he's engaging you and me and he's debating with i think the moralists those who would say well i'm a good person i am trying to do the right thing and i'm not like what you see there in chapter one i'm not like that i'm different i'm a i'm a good person i am uh, an upright individual and paul says no you're without excuse as well because you're able to judge and by able to judge it means that you're able to say here's something that's right here's something that's wrong now that's not a bad ability that's actually a good ability to have discernment to be able to figure out what's evil and to be able to figure out what's good the goal isn't to be able to pull back and say i have no idea i have no idea that's not the goal but what he's saying is that knowledge, if you have that knowledge, he says, then because you have that knowledge, you also condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, in our human hearts, many of us we read that and we go, That's not true. You know, I I don't do the same things. I, I don't practice the same things, but there it is in God's word for us in black and white you he says the judge practice the very same things and i think that in so many ways uh, this is very easy for us to demonstrate how many of you you understand that within your own life you're blind to your own faults and if you're like no i don't know i'm not well that's just proving the point a little bit there (laughs) Because probably there's nobody here who couldn't think of people that they know in their lives who they would say they are blind to their faults. It's easy for us to see that maybe in someone else's life and maybe not as easy for us to see it in our own lives. I can't tell you how many times I've fired up, you know, a really great lecture for one of my kids or for all of my kids and within the very same day have realized, oh, judge you are guilty because you practice the very same things you're doing the very thing and in fact there's even a insidious part of our heart that can more effectively see the sins that we commit in the lives of others it's just kind of a thing that's very natural to us to be able to see the sinful tendencies in others that we ourselves might gravitate towards so I think in one sense, part of this is just being blind to our own faults. I think another way that we practice the very same things is that sometimes I think we forget our own past. We forget some of the things that we've done. We forget the sins that we've committed or that we practice, that we're a regular part of our lives. And we're thankful to be forgiven, we're thankful to be cleansed by God, but The moralist forgets that they even went there at all. You see, the grace of God, the gospel, will produce a righteousness but also a humility in dealing with other people because you understand, but by the grace of God, there go I. This is sin that I'm seeing. However, I understand how easy it is for me and others to slip into those sins. I think another way that we practice the very same things is simply by sometimes renaming sin. Have you ever done this? I don't struggle with anger. I'm passionate. Uh, I don't lie. I'm just stretching the truth. I'm not stealing. I'm borrowing. These are some of the ways that we recategorize sin. I'm not prejudiced. I just have convictions. But I think probably a major way that the judge practices the very same things is by simply practicing the very same things. Saying with their mouth, but secretly in their hearts, like Jesus said, and secretly in their lives, actually living out the very things that they condemn others for. Paul then announces in verse 2, he says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. In other words, God is holy, and His judgment is coming upon all imperfection. His judgment rightly falls on those who practice such things. I mean, if you think about it, what Paul is announcing here is that the righteous standard is not anyone else. The righteous standard is God. I mean we love to compare each other by each other, right? Who's the guy that everybody, you know, compares themselves to? Isn't it interesting? We always compare ourselves to Hitler. I'm no Hitler, people will say. I'm no Hitler. Like, well, like God is up there in heaven going, "Congratulations, you know. Great job." You know, that was my standard, just don't be Hitler. No. The standard is himself. It's it's like standing on the moon looking at the planet earth and trying to figure out who's five feet tall and who's six feet tall none of us i mean the, the the gap is so so insignificant so small in comparison with the righteousness with the holiness with the perfection with the glory of god and so the standard is god himself and so paul announces in verse three he says do you suppose oh man who you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, in so much of the blatant um, immorality that we saw in chapter one, there are sometimes consequences that are not so obvious but many times there are obvious consequences but for the moralist many times the obvious consequences aren't necessarily there and he might be prone to say well look at the kindness that i have from god upon my life i'm not suffering deep consequences in my heart i'm not suffering deep consequences in my life and so they categorize that to mean or think to mean that God approves of the life that I'm living. But Paul announces in verse 4, no, the kindness and forbearance and patience of God is meant to lead you to repentance. In other words, God is giving you time to come to a place where you recognize I am guilty before a holy and righteous God, and nothing that I can do can approve myself to Him, and I need for Him to give me salvation. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. I need him to save me. The moralist needs to come to the place of realizing that they are to be led also to a place of repenting their sin, of their sin before the Lord and receiving Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior. But then he says in verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 that we're to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Uh, Steve and Nora talked about that a little bit when they said that you're going to meet meet in heaven many friends uh, from Malawi. That is storing up for yourself treasures uh, in heaven. That same word though, storing up, is a word that Paul uses right here in verse 5 for the moralist about the wrath of God. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So what we're learning is that we need an outlet for the wrath of God. God's anger, that disposition against sin, it has to go somewhere. You see, the moralist, he says, God is kind, I won't be judged. You maybe have heard this kind of thought. Where people will use God's nature or God's character, theology, they'll use theology against God himself. God is described in the Bible as love. God is love, John says, of God. But I can't tell you how many times I've heard that quoted, not in the proper context, but in the context of sin and unrepentance. But God is love. He's not going to deal with me. He's not going to touch my sin. He's not going to bring judgment upon my life. But Paul here announces no. God's anger, God's wrath is towards those things. This is why the gospel message is so beautiful. Because the wrath and the anger of God was satisfied by Jesus Christ. On the cross of Christ, as we're going to learn in Romans chapter 3. That's why you want to get under the blood of Jesus and the cross of Christ as quickly as possible so that the wrath of God is no longer on you with your sin, but is now dealt with in Jesus Christ as you're placed into Christ and what he has done for you. Now in verse 6, Paul goes on and he simply explains Uh, that God's judgment, as we've brought up now, is completely impartial, that it will affect everyone uh, fairly and justly. Notice what he says in verse 6. And really, kind of the way he's going to lay this out in verse 6 through 11 is, he's going to say God's going to judge everyone uh, impartially. uh, And God will judge people who are good. He'll judge people who are evil. And then he'll repeat that. God will judge people who are evil. And then he'll repeat, God will judge people who are good. And then finally, he'll conclude with the same idea. God is impartial in his judgment. So let's read verse six to eight together. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, But obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now, the first part, that God will render to each one according to his works, verse 6. This is a concept that is repeated in the Old and New Testament actually quite a bit. Uh, One place is Psalm 62, verse 12, which Paul might have actually been quoting. It says, God, you will render to a man according to his work. Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 27 in the New Testament, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And then again, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, the thing about this, though, that's confusing to us as Christians about what Paul is saying here is that we've already gotten Paul's famous proclamation of his uh, joy over the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation. And the thing that he said is it comes to everyone who not does good works, but to everyone who believes and that the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith, for as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. If you've been around the church at all or the Word of God at all, you understand that Paul is the apostle of grace and he preaches the doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. So here he comes saying, God will render to each one according to his works. And then even expands on that in verse 7 by saying, The one who in patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So what is Paul getting at when he makes this statement? He clearly isn't going to introduce here in one spot a brand new path to salvation. Uh, Seek glory, seek immortality, uh, seek honor from God. And you do that and God will give you eternal life. And everywhere else he says, You can't get it that way. You gotta get eternal life by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, your trust in Jesus Christ and what he has done uh, for you. So what is Paul saying? How does this fit into the entirety of the book of Romans, verse six and seven? Well, one line of thought about this is that simply what Paul might be saying is, is simply, if you decide to be judged not by the work of Christ, but your own works, then this is how it rolls. If you, for your whole life, always and at all times, are seeking for God's glory, wanting his honor upon your life, in other words, you want to be well-pleasing to him, and you want his presence in your life so much, immortality, if that's what defines your life from the very beginning to the very end, then yes, that is the judgment that will lend you eternal life. But what we're going to learn later in the book of Romans is that there is none righteous, no, not one, and that no one seeks after God. So nobody would ever receive salvation or eternal life that way, all right? So that's one line of of thinking about it, and it could be the right way to, to see it. I think personally, though, I'm with those who think that what Paul is actually saying here is that he's describing the life of a person who has received Christ as their Lord and as their Savior. When Jesus gets into your life, when the gospel comes into your life truly with sincerity, it's real, it's legitimate, he's impacted your heart and he's impacted your life, you begin to live a life, maybe not completely and in its entirety at all times, but you begin to seek for God's glory, God's honor, and God's immortality. What does that mean? His glory means that what you want to see more than anything is God. That, that's a really important point because that is really what heaven is all about. Sometimes we lower ourselves to talking about heaven like other religions talk about heaven, purely paradise. Now, it will be paradise, but for the believer, it's paradise because God is there. And if he wasn't there, there'd be this thing within the heart of a believer that says, I don't want to go there. I want to go wherever God is. I want to see him. He saved me. He redeemed me. He loves me. I want to be with him. All right, so that's part of a desire of someone who's really been impacted by the gospel. His Desiring his honor means I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. I want to hear his pleasure over my life. I want to live a life that is pleasing to him. And immortality means that we understand we will be fully satisfied only when we are in his presence. That that will be joy uh, forevermore. So, Personally, I wouldn't wouldn't be surprised if what Paul is describing here, maybe it's a little bit of both. If you want to be judged by your works, then it's just not gonna be possible because you'd have to live this perfect life for the duration of your life. However, when you're saved, the Lord redeems you and he begins to make in you a person who longs for God's glory, God's honor, and God's immortality in and upon uh, your life. So I hope that makes sense to you. But then in verse 9, he goes on, and he says, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also to the Greek. So he gives two categories, those who do evil, those who do good, and he gives two destinies tribulation and distress on on one hand and glory and honor and peace on the other hand so who wants to have the glory and honor and peace destiny that's what we long for and he says it happens to everyone the jew first and also to the greek so he announces in verse 11 for god shows no partiality so paul's point there is simply this god is going to judge mankind completely fairly There will be no partiality. And on the day of judgment, in its various shapes and in its various forms, we will not be able to find even one soul that argues with God. Everyone will agree with God. Everyone will discover he is righteous, he is pure, he is true, and the judgments that he has proclaimed. There is no partiality with God. And the moralist so easily wants to overlook his own stuff. And excuses it maybe a little bit. I, I find that that's definitely true in my own heart. There are things within me that uh, I just, I am so, it's so much easier for me to excuse it in myself than it is in you. You know, uh, well, you know, I was tired. And so I just wasn't at my best, you know, kind of thing. I have so many different, but you do the very same things. And I'm like, what is wrong with them kind of thing? It's just the way of the human heart so often. And Paul here announces, no, that kind of partiality does not and will not exist with God. So we're seeing again our need for the grace of God, our need for the message of the gospel. Now let's close today by looking at verse 12 to 16. Paul says something in these verses that is very helpful to us because we might say to ourselves at this point, okay, well, your judgment, God, is impartial. I I can see that. And you're looking into human hearts. I I can see that. And you're giving time and space to mankind, not because you're approving of sin, but because you're giving us time to repent of our sins. So, okay, cool, I see that. But we might sort of ask the question with that last phrase that he said, because he said, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we might say to ourselves, well, you know, the nation of Israel and people who were under Judaism, they have a pretty significant advantage. I mean, they had the Ten Commandments. They had the Bible, the Old Testament, the law of God. And God, you were communicating a lot of expectations with them. But the Gentile world, that's not always the case. You know, there's people that live on islands and foreign places that have never, you know, even learned how to read or write, let alone actually receive in written form your word. So, you know, what about that, Lord? What about them? How could your judgment be righteous and pure and without partiality when we all come from these varying Places of revelation from your word. Some with none, some with a lot. How, how do you deal with that? Well, this is what Paul says in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So there are some who don't have it, the revelation from God, the law. And there are some who do have it but everybody's judged some perish without it some are judged with it for verse 13 it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before god but the doers of the law who will be uh, justified now we learn elsewhere in the new testament that we're to be doers of the word and not hearers only and that is a great application for all of us to understand that the goal is not just to hear the Word of God or to learn the Word of God but then to actually live it out and practice it but that isn't really the thing that Paul is highlighting here I I think that what he's mentioning here is if somebody hears the law that doesn't make them righteous you actually have to do the law and there's no one who has ever completely done the law Four, verse 14 When those who do not have the law look at this by nature do what the law requires they Are a law to themselves? Even though they do not have the law they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts Well, their conscience also bears witness And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So you just think about it like this. For instance, in the Ten Commandments, one of the things that was given to the people of Israel in the law was you shall honor your father and your mother. You honor your parents. Now, there are cultures and societies and groups of people who never heard the Ten Commandments, never read the Old Testament, who in that culture and in that society, there's a general understanding. Those are the people that gave birth to me and raised me and fed me and cared for me. And they came before me. They're my elders. I need to honor them, right? So there's that sense. There's no, why do I need to honor them? Well, because I read it in the 10 commandments. That's not there. They hadn't read that. They hadn't gotten that law, but they understand it intuitively, Perhaps it comes through their conscience. Perhaps it comes from the teaching of others. Perhaps it comes just by simple observation and common sense. But it comes. So that is what Paul says, that is now a law to themselves. They had no Bible. They had no code written out for them. But there it was. And they are attesting to the very law of God that he has defined. Same with something like, thou shalt not steal. It's not like throughout the whole world when somebody steals something and someone else says, hey, you can't take that. That's mine. Uh, It's not like in the whole world if the the person that steals says, "Well, well, who says? Why not? The person says, I say. It's mine. That's not right. It's just revealed within them. There doesn't always have to be the answer of because it's in the Bible. It's just a revelation in the heart of man. This is a general statement that Paul is making. And so he's saying that in that pagan world or Gentile world, people without the revelation of God's word, they are a law to themselves. The conscience can be seared, absolutely. But so often, the conscience of mankind actually... uh, is helping them understand the law that is inside of them. Even notice the phrase at the end of verse 15, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Sometimes even when there is this boisterous, almost an overemphasized, this behavior is right for me to engage in, when that is overemphasized, what you're seeing is there's a masking. There's a masking of a law that has been revealed inside the heart of man. And so what Paul is saying is whether you've gotten the whole Bible and somebody gave it to you from your infancy. Or whether you just had personal revelation like I shouldn't steal. I should honor pe- my uh, parents. I should uh, be content in, with the, what I have. I should be loyal in my marriage. These are things that are often found throughout humanity and then. When we break them, whether internally in our hearts or externally in our lives, Paul says, you're guilty. Everybody is guilty. Everybody needs the salvation that is provided in the gospel. And so what we're going to see as we could progress through the book of Romans is that God will deal with every man and woman throughout the course of human history based on the amount of revelation that they received from God. And uh, so Paul is making this big announcement, Jew and Gentile, no matter what, there is that uh, conviction, there is that guilt. And he talks about that judgment which, verse 16, our last verse on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So he tells us that on that day of judgment, and there are other passages throughout the Old and New Testament which give us some finer detail about the judgment of God, or I should say judgments of God, and the different categories of the judgment of God eternally upon the church, the nation of Israel, the unbelieving world. But what we learn here are a few different things, that the judgment of God will deal with, number one, the secrets of men. Number two, it happens according to, Paul says, my gospel. Now the word gospel means good news. So in other words, Paul's saying, This judgment of God is part of the good news. In other words, you'd say, why is it such good news? And you'd say, because it helps us escape the judgment of God. In other words, if there is no judgment, why do we need the gospel? And then thirdly, it comes by Jesus Christ. The question will be, what have you done with my son? Uh, And that is the judgment that is upon uh, mankind. Now this helps us, every one of us, say, I need the blood of Jesus. I need the gospel. I need his salvation. I need his cleansing. I need him to wash me through and through. The immoral world needs the gospel, and the moral world needs the gospel All of us must come under the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for this just very clear, Lord, um, declaration that you breathed into Paul's mind and came out from his pen onto paper and has now been preserved for us. That we would see, Lord, that all of mankind is... under your righteous judgment, but that, Lord, you allowed your Son to be judged. Father, you gave your only begotten Son that He would take my place, all of my self-righteousness, all of the sin that I've committed in so many ways worse than the sin that people commit when they don't even know that it's wrong, but sin that I commit knowing that it's wrong. Like this moralist judge, Lord, it just helps me see afresh my deep need for the cross of Christ. That I am approved not by what I've done, but by who I know and who I now am in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you have made us, as if we are believing in you, trusting in you today, you've made us sons and daughters, children who cannot even begin to escape the love of God. That we have been transferred from the anger of God toward our ungodliness and unrighteousness, and now that the love of God is flowing towards us by the cross of Jesus Father, we are amazed. We pray, Lord, that you'd open, Lord, these hearts of ours and these minds of ours, Lord, to trust and believe in this good news, Lord, that you have, Lord, given to us. Thank you, Lord. And I want to ask this morning, if there is anybody today, it's time for you to, as we saw Paul say, It's time for you to repent, to turn from your sin, whether very public or very private, and to ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of all of your sin and to remove from you the wrath of God and to now become a child of God, to become changed, forgiven, cleansed by the very God who looks upon sin and cannot bear it. Is there anyone here this morning, it's time for you to put your weight to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. I want to pray with you. Would you please just look up and raise your hand right now if that's you. I want to ask the Lord to come into your life. God bless you, sir. Is there anybody else here this morning? You'd say, that's me. Perhaps you've trusted in your works or some other thing. It's time for you to trust in Jesus Christ. Is there anyone else this morning you'd say that's me. It's time for me to be saved, to be saved, to receive the righteousness of God. I pray that he would open up your heart, open up your mind, your eyes that you might see his deep love for you, His rescue of you. Is there anyone else this morning you'd say that's me. you you raise your hand I want you to pray like this you say God have mercy upon me a sinner and I repent of my sin and give my life to you forgive me of my sin say thank you God for sending Jesus to die in my place and for raising him from the grave come into my life and be my Savior and the Lord of my life and help me, Lord, to live a life for you, to learn of you, and to grow in you. In Jesus Christ's name, we pray together. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Church, let's stand together this morning. If you prayed that by raising your hand and praying or even just privately in your heart you you did receive the Lord this morning and I realize in a text like this that is very possible I want you on your way out to go into the Welcome Center and find the people holding one of these in their hands and say I prayed today we want to help you get started right in your new life in Christ Jesus Church have a great week this week God bless you guys And I love you so much. And uh, please stop by to visit Steve and Nora. And also the grill is uh, open for hangout and fellowship. Let's sing together.